Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is George Ackla, joined as always by the fantastic Patrick Scott. Patrick, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to be going over initial public offerings, denoted IPOs. We're going to be going over ARM, the semiconductor company, and Instacart as well. So should be good. Yeah, you've probably heard about those a lot in the news. We haven't really had that many in 2023, and then all of a sudden we've seen a surge of three really big ones in the last 10 days. Big names, yeah. Before we get started, we do want to remind you that this show is for entertainment purposes only. As always, do your due diligence and talk to trusted legal or financial counsel before making any decisions. Before we start talking about specific IPOs, I think it's important that we know what IPOs are. And it's a pretty simple concept at face value, but there is a little nuance in there that I think we should discuss. So Patrick, what's your best definition of an IPO? An initial public offering is when a company goes private to publicly traded and it is the first price that they sell it at, that they set personally. Yeah, pretty much exactly. It's just a private company that is becoming publicly traded and there's a lot of reasons that this can or that they want this to happen. So I'm going to use an extended metaphor, or maybe it's not a metaphor, just an example of an IPO. So let's say there's a company called Gabe's Graham Crackers. And they're just like the greatest graham cracker company. And so they decide to go public. Let's say the company is quote unquote worth $200. Let's say we agree to go public and through council, we decide to issue a hundred shares at $2 and 25 cents each. Now you'll notice that's $225, not $200. A lot of times in IPOs, companies become slightly more valuable because there is more demand for shares. Investors who wouldn't normally be able to invest in the company are able to demand more, and the basic economic model would suggest that that makes the price go up. Now, both me and you, Patrick, we want to keep some of the equity in the company, but we also want to cash out because we've worked hard. We, we want to make some money off of this. So let's say me and you both decide to sell 40% equity position, which means that we only have... 10% each now, right, but yeah. we, we sell it to underwriter JP Morgan for $2 a share. It's worth two twenty-five a share. Why are we going to sell it to an underwriter for $2 a share? And then you know I'm going to ask you what an underwriter is, right? <laughs> yeah, so an underwriter, what they're doing is they're taking on the risk. We're talking about 100 shares, but in many IPOs, there's going to be millions of shares. And for just me and you, we don't have the connections where we can easily sell a million shares. So what we're going to do is we're just going to sell a block of a million shares to JP Morgan, almost like we're a wholesale retailer. Then we don't have to worry about them ever again. It's their responsibility. They get a discount on it. But if all things go south, we've still gotten our money. We've still gotten out of there. So that's the IPO when you sell it to the underwriter? That's not a public offering because, mind you, JP Morgan is still... That it's not publicly traded at that point. Okay. JP Morgan is going to try to sell it to other people in off-the-books transactions, or when I say off-the-books, still not publicly traded. So JP Morgan, in a normal IPO, let's say they get a million shares, they maybe sell 100,000 shares to U.S. Bank or to other larger banks, and then it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Each transaction, you know, the banks are maybe getting a couple pennies off of it, but that adds up very quickly. In this scenario, it's kind of the perfect family because everyone's happy. Me and Patrick are happy because 
we got we're able to cash out on some of our our, our hard-earned equity. JP Morgan was able to underwrite the transaction and make money. And these institutions that are buying from JP Morgan, they get access to a company before it's public. We've now established how the shares get distributed from the company, the private company. We distributed it to the underwriters who made a few cents per share off the transaction. And then the underwriters sold it to institutions in slightly smaller blocks of shares. And now there's a bunch of different institutions that have shares of Gabe's graham crackers. Is that all making sense? So the underwriters are say- selling it to like small local banks or something? Local is probably a little stretch, but they're selling it. Let's say the underwriter bought a million shares from the private company. They might sell it to them in blocks of 100,000 shares. And then you go to a smaller brokerage that's they sell them from there, you know, 50,000 shares in a block. So do the shares that the underwriters buy, do those ever get to like an individual investor? And that's what happens on the on the morning of the IPO or when, when the IPO takes place is at the opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange. I want to remind our audience there's like a lot of regulatory proceedings that happen before then, a lot of thought that goes into what price it's going to start at. But that's when trading begins. And a lot of times what you'll see is a huge spike on the first day of trading where the price goes up quite a bit. And that's because, like you said, the general public who hasn't had access to the shares, up until this point, it's only been institutions, pretty much. The, the general public is excited because they can finally buy these shares for the first time. Right. So the demand exceeds the supply greatly in a lot of cases. And then you'll see a 10 or 15% spike on the first day of trading. And that's what we saw with Instacart. What generally happens after that is that you have the institutions who want to make a quick buck off the transaction they're content with 10 or 15%. So they start slowly selling off their shares and then uh, supply starts exceeding demand. So you'll see an initial spike because people are really enthusiastic. A lot of the general public wants to buy. And then you'll see the institutions in a lot of cases start selling and the stock price start to go down. Okay, that uh, makes sense. Again, this doesn't happen in every case and I don't want to steer anyone wrong if you know IPO investing is your thing. But it's a trend that we've seen Historically, with a lot of IPOs, uh, where you see a spike in the first day of trading, and then after that, you know, a slight decline. This still doesn't solve an underlying question. I still haven't explained why did Gabe's Graham Crackers want to go public in the first place. So there's benefits for the previous owners. We now have liquidity. Now that it's traded on the New York Stock Exchange, we can just log into a brokerage account, and there's now a marketplace of buyers and sellers because we've created a standardized product. Now, I should mention that the reason there hasn't been so many IPOs recently is the rise of private equity. And we're not going to go into that. Maybe we'll bring in a guest to talk a little about private equity. Almost like you, th- you can think of how, if you've ever seen Shark Tank, how that works. That's in a little way private equity. So you could, with priv- private equity, hypothetically invest in like Chick-fil-A. Yes, hypothetically, you could. So a lot of uh, private businesses, that's the way they're going. There's a lot more suppliers who are willing to give funding to the private equity space that you can get pretty good terms of deals, good access to debt. So because there's so many people who want to supply private equity with funds, you have pretty easy access to funds. Whereas in you know 2010 or 2015, you would want to go public because that was the only way that you could get cheap debt. But yeah, Gabe's Graham Crackers, another reason maybe they wanted to go public is you can get more prestigious management 
It sounds a little better if you are on the board of directors or a CFO of a publicly traded company, but there are its downsides too. So as we said, you have to do a lot of regulatory things leading up to the IPO. You do have to make quarterly financial statements. You have to release your 10K and 10Qs, which the 10K is a yearly financial report. The 10Q is a quarterly financial report. This adds a lot of levels of bureaucracy. Those reports cost millions of dollars a year to file. And also if you make mistakes, you have to disclose them, you know, very quickly. Or else you go to jail. That's what I've heard. Yeah, if you well, if it's fraud, yes, you would like go to jail. That's okay. securities fraud. However, like I said, with, with some of the IPOs that have been happening this last week, people are claiming that the IPO market is back open after a long winter. And the one I'm most interested in is is the story that Patrick's bringing today. Patrick, take it away. So getting into Instacart, it was founded in 2012 by Apurva Meta, who was actually a former Amazon worker, um, among other companies that he worked for. But he he left that job to um, go go make his own company. So he started this grocery delivery online service that provides personal shopping services. So you sort of hire someone to go get your groceries for you and bring them to you. And their whole strategy works like this. A big part of their strategy is that they get contracts with stores and chains, um, like grocery stores and pharmacies. And they get far, uh, they're able to get these partnerships because many individual stores and chains don't really have the capacity right now to do online door orders and delivery themselves, or at least not efficiently. I know Walmart is getting into that realm. Um, they're you know big enough that they can start doing that online pretty efficiently. But Instacart has been a good mediator between the the customer and the store. As I said, a lot of these companies just aren't able to go online by themselves yet. So in this way, they're in the business of helping the shopping process for the customer and the store, right? So the customer wants, you know, someone else to bring their groceries to them and the store wants to be able to be a player in this new online market for groceries. And so that's that's why they're, it's, it's kind of a best of both both worlds there. And according to their August 2023 S1 form, which is sort of like, I guess, George, you would say like their IPO 10K, like right before they go public. Yeah, it's a required filing they have to do before they go public. So they have 7.7 .7 million monthly active orders who spend about 317 a month on Instacart. Is that $317 in groceries, I assume, not like fees to Instacart, right? It said on Instacart. So that makes me think that it includes the fees. So including fees, like they're not paying Instacart $317 a month. Oh though. no, not, not just directly Instacart. Okay. So they're spending money on groceries and on service fees to Instacart. And that is all lumped up. And do you, do you know what percent they're making back on that? I can't totally remember. I feel like it might've been something like 5%, but don't quote me on that. It seems kind of similar to like the margins that I've seen, you know, with other companies. It's very similar to DoorDash in some ways. Yeah, it was fairly low. And there were, there were actually some scandals that I read about, like um, some, some strikes for, from Instacart workers who said they weren't getting paid enough. Um, they actually removed the tip option at one point, which made some people mad. Anyways, customers can shop in Walmart actually on the Instacart app. So Instacart, it's almost like they don't have their own app, but they just sort of copy everything, all of Walmart's selection and put it into their own app sort of. Okay. So it's personalized for each different store though. Yeah. And so it's centralized. So you got all these different stores on the Instacart app, I gotcha. suppose. I mean, I don't have it, so I, I can't tell you from personal experience, but it's so popular, I think, because grocery runs can just take a long time. 
um, especially if you don't have a grocery grocery list with you. And so people are going to be willing to pay an extra fee for a middleman if they don't have to wander around the store for a while. And, you know, if we think about it from a marketing perspective, uh, this is actually detrimental to the stores themselves, at least I would think, because brick and mortar stores like Walmart and such and the grocery stores, they make so much money off of putting the staple goods in the back of the store. So when you go in to get milk, it's always in the back and that's put there for a reason. It's because when you walk all the way back there, they expect you to see, oh, look at this. I need some tricks cereal. I don't know. It's it's, yeah. it's on a deal. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a weird almost competition of two factors. So on one hand, I think you're right that you don't have people walking through the store making the impulse buys. But as Amazon one-click ordering has showed us, that there's a lot of online impulse buying too. So I would like to see a comparison of the lesser of two evils, I guess. Yeah, and that's interesting too because I, f- I figured, yeah, there wouldn't be so many impulse buys, but at the same time, you can see a lot more in the store with your eyes than you can on like one screen on your phone. Yeah. Also, you're like not walking through the store, but you're going to the search bar and looking up specific Keen things. Keen in the items you exactly. want. Exactly. So understandably, they did pretty great in COVID. Online ordering spiked and the number of employees more than tripled. It went from like 100,000 to... 300,000. And it's been going up ever since, uh, along with the revenue. And they've also actually made hundreds of millions of dollars raised through outside investors, which I suppose maybe is getting along to what you said about private equity, maybe. But all this raised the company valuation to around 40 billion in 2020 and 2021, um, before it was slashed by 40%. Um, to $24 billion in 2022. Yeah, and I think you're right. I believe they did have private equity investments from big banks prior to going public and, you know, way before that in the 2020s. Okay. Going into their IPO, Instacart recently set its IPO at $30, and they raised $660 million in selling 22 million shares to underwriters before the share price opened at $42. And it closed later at $32. And so, you know, if we think about this from a valuation standpoint, with the initial public offering at $30, it's at the market cap of at $10 billion. And if we want to remind ourselves what market cap is, market capitalization is your share price times the number of shares you have. And so it's basically like a hypothetical what the company should be worth. And so when shares popped to $42, the market cap was at $11 billion. So IPOs are risky, um, especially when they're priced high because there's just more room to fall. It spiked and plummeted in one day. And, you know, as we've talked about, this is a pretty common occurrence with these IPOs. Um, And then it just settles for a little bit. So part of this is how much the underwriters buy, you know, and I think how much the underwriters buy does have an impact, right, on on public investing. You know, if, if you see how much you know, these big investment banks are are buying. I figured that would like raise excitement. Yeah. So I would say that's less of the big investment banking. I think the bigger thing, um, because the underwriting actually happens uh, before the IPO, but I think the thing you're probably hitting at is they don't really know what the demand is going to be like on the public market. Like you don't know what the retail investor demand is going to be. I'm sure there's ways that people in the investing industry try to forecast that but it seems that either way, whatever an IPO opens at, it's very rare that it stays even close to that for the first you know, couple of weeks, months of trading. Yeah. So the real question is when we're bu- buying companies, buying small pieces of the company, it is, but has the actual value of the company changed? 
And has it really changed that fast? Like, was Instacart's initial valuation off by 40%? I, I like how you, you're reading Intelligent Investor right now by Benjamin Graham. And he talks a lot about Mr. Market and how Mr. Market feels. On one day, he might say a, sh- a share is worth this much. Another day, a share is worth, you know, way less. So the thing about Instacart, too, is right now you said they're valued at $10 billion. During COVID, they thought it was closer to $40 billion. And people had made their projections based on COVID numbers that, oh, if people continue to order at this rate and increase over the next decade, Instacart's going to be like, you know, the, a huge company. What they failed to realize is a lot of people do like grocery shopping in the stores, especially when you have to pay someone to do the shopping for you. You can't look at your own produce and meats and stuff like that. A lot of people went away from Instacart, which people weren't expecting. So yeah, I mean, based on the day, Mr. Market prices shares differently. So there's not a really, market cap isn't really a great way to say the value is definitely worth this much because it's changing from day to day. Right. And intelligent investing is largely based on, you know, not projections of what I think this company will be worth necessarily, but how much is it really worth now and comparing that to the share price. Yeah, that's all the value investors, Buffett, Graham. What they're saying is people are, they overweight the future expectations, underweight the past. And so they try to find a happy medium where, yeah, you have to look at the future, but you can't be too idealistic about it. And that's even, you know, still my quip with Instacart is that I think it's they're operating in a really tough area. You know, grocery has been tough for a while. And someone brought up that they don't really benefit from economies of scale. And do you know what that is? Economies of scale is when um, you're able to produce more of something so you can, um, it's more efficient when you produce more of something than when you produce less of it. So like if I, you know, made shirts by hand, I guess, then it would be a lot helpful if, a lot more helpful if I, made a ton of shirts, but I had a machine to do it. Yeah. So the idea is like, in the case of a shirt making company, you're going to be much less efficient than someone who could afford to buy a shirt maker. The problem with Instacart is they don't have the technology right now where they can have like robots do the shopping or whatever. So when they pay people each bundle of new orders, they have to hire more employees at very similar rates. So it's really hard for them to scale the business. They're not getting much more of an advantage if they're a $100 billion business versus $10 billion because they rely on human capital versus you can think of something like Adobe technology. Adobe, they spend a ton of money on the front end, but right now if they added another 100 million users, they would only have to probably pay 5% of that new revenue to, you know, providing more support because the product is already there. And I'll quick jump over to ARM. We don't have a ton of time left, which is fine. But basically, ARM is a really interesting business because they sell the instruction manuals for modern chips. So 99% of devices have some of ARM's instructions in the chips they use, which is really cool because their gross profit margins are like 95% because all they need is engineers who are drawing up instructions. And then they just do the same thing over and over again. It's simple. Yeah, and then they sell those instruction manuals to Qualcomm, to Apple, to Samsung, which they then use. You know, they can sell these instructions for a ton of money. It's a pretty cool business model. You have the optimists who argue that if they can get even a little bit into the AI realm, this company is going to go crazy. 
Whereas you have the pessimists who say, hey, it's already in 99% of devices. How much more can you really expect? Like, right. what's the runway on this? Like I said, I don't want to spend too much time talking about ARM. They had a very similar trajectory after their IPO. Uh, like Instacart, they had a, a very big spike at the beginning, and now they're down below the pre-IPO price despite all the hype uh, of this of this British technology company. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. You might be a little surprised that we haven't talked about stock market conditions in today's episode, being that the S&P 500 has lost nearly 4% over the past week. At Wall Street Weekly, we like to focus on kind of the big stories and the events that are going to be most compelling for our listening audience. And while 4% is a big number, and especially since we've seen much of that loss in the past two days, we believe that in the grand scheme of things, it's either a small dip in a larger recovery or a part of a bigger story. And in either case, that's something that we will cover in a future episode. And of course, if it continues to fall another 4 or 5%, that is something we'll cover in next week's episode. So make sure to tune in for that. If you've missed any of our previous shows, those can be found on X using the handle at Wall Street Pod. We have a lot of great episodes that we've done in the past, including one that we stayed up late to record about the Detroit automakers strike. And my personal favorite, where me and Patrick get to talk about Disney and Apple and the future of those companies. But we really appreciate that you took time to tune into the show this week. And thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.